Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 7, and then chapter 13, verse 4. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What did you have? What do you, what do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Love does not boast. It is not arrogant. This is God's word. No, I'm not preaching. Um, Blake... Price is preaching, but as we try to do, uh, this is Blake's first time preaching uh, in Redeemer. So, just wanted to briefly, for those of you who may not know him, or what, in the, who is this guy? What in the world is he doing? Where's Drew? Uh, you know, whatever might be going through your head at this moment. Um, we have interns in our church. We, as a church, were planted by another church, and we want to be a church that plants churches. Uh, so, if you think of our church in in that sense as kind of like a laboratory. Uh, and these interns is kind of like, you know, what do you do in labs? You grow things in Petri dishes and you have to care for those Petri dishes and, you know, you do whatever they do with those things. Uh, I don't know, but cause I'm not a, I don't work in one of those, but I thought the illustration was somewhat appropriate <laughs> from the standpoint of we're trying to grow and raise up, right? New leaders. Uh, and God has blessed us with a number of young guys to do that. So whenever they get up here, uh, we try to encourage you all to, <clears throat> uh, to quote, uh, my friend, lean in, you know, take notes, laugh at their jokes, even if they're not funny, uh, whatever you need to do to engage, right? Uh, because what you're doing by listening to him is making him a better preacher and it takes practice, Right. So he may not be very good. I'm setting him up. Um, But nonetheless, uh, listen in and, and help him. And if you take good notes, you can be a help to him. You can be a blessing to him. And I know, because I know Blake, he would appreciate that. Be a blessing to him. So please, please listen in. Uh, welcome him and uh, give thanks to God that he is raising up an- another generation of leaders for his church because he promises to build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is testimony to that. So, Blake, welcome. I don't even know what you do after an introduction like that. Um, I have about a dozen thoughts. Uh, The first one is, I don't know if you're a basketball fan, this probably isn't appropriate in this crowd, but uh, Allen Iverson and practice, that came first. The second one was, he he leaned over to me and said he was going to refer to a Petri dish and I was going to be involved. I thought he was going somewhere with that. I don't think he knew where he was going with that, though. Um, We'll we'll work on that before we get Joe up here. Um, uh, Anyways, well, that's, that's enough of the first dozen. Thanks for laughing, even though it wasn't funny. Um, the one other thing I, I guess I just need to say just for, to get it off my chest so I can move on. Uh, this is, this is a humbling experience. I don't, 
if you ever need to be humbled, if you ever need to feel insignificant or inadequate, uh, just be asked to stand up in front of a room of over, I don't even want to guess. Let's just go, go to 150 for round numbers and then make most of them older than you and all of them smarter than you. And then try and figure out how you're going to talk to them. It, it gets exciting. And, and Brian, I don't know where Brian is, but like, it, it probably is just because of that feeling of inadequacy right now, but the songs just were, were great today. The music was good. Uh, Jesus was lifted up, and I appreciate that. I, I feel even smaller than I did when we started this morning. Um, but anyways, uh, that's probably too much. Uh, like Jonathan said, um, I'm a, an intern here, and I'm actually just getting started uh, working with what we're calling assimilation, uh, just bringing people into the church and helping them find a place and get settled in and, and really make this feel like home and really begin to turn it into um, a community, I think is, is the word we'd like to use, to, to a place where, where you can come and gain benefit, spiritual benefit from being around people that love you and want to pour into your life, and, and you can do likewise back that you can love those around you and that you can build into them and encourage them and exhort them and rebuke them, hopefully minimally, but as necessary. Um, That's an exciting thing. We're a a growing church with a lot of stuff coming. And I just, I want to take this opportunity because there are so many of you that I haven't met um, to kind of sort of meet you, to kind of introduce myself to you and just let you know what's going on. I'd love to get to know those of you that I don't especially those of you that are struggling through this whole what's a community group or how do I get involved. Um, those, we'll talk more about that later. That, that kind of becomes a vital part of what we talk about today. But uh, anyways, uh, without further ado, let's try and make sense out of what's going on. Um, a little bit of background. We are in a series um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's, it's popularly known as the love chapter. Um, Take a breath. Sorry. Today we're looking specifically at the phrase in verse 4 that we read at the end of our sermon passage that Susan read for us this morning. Love is not boastful. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant. Uh, It could also be said that love is not proud. So that's the angle we're coming at things today. But you need to understand this under the overarching theme of what's going on. Um, In the context of this, Drew set us up a few weeks ago. If you weren't here, I'd like to just catch you up. Um, He said that the purpose of this entire series was to explore whether our hearts have been morally reformed or supernaturally transformed by the grace of God. That's a very important distinction. We're looking at the characteristics of someone who has been transformed, not the requirements to be transformed. So as we talk this morning, it's important to understand We're we're going to talk about pride. We're going to talk about humility, not from the perspective that it's something that you have to to learn how to have to be a Christian, but from the perspective that when you become a Christian, when God grabs a hold of your life and draws you to himself, that that that's something he begins to work, that that's something that naturally arises from a heart that is humbled by that that beautiful picture, that that undeserving picture that we see in the Gospels. So, So it has to be said here at the outset, that this is not about working hard to change the things we do, that all too often we mistake our talents for spirituality. Uh, I want to quote Drew at length, at, at medium length, and then we'll move on. He said it best this way. You need to know that love is a person. And you will never become a loving person if you think of love as a set of principles or a paradigm that you have to pick up and breathe life into. No, love is a living, active power that has to get a hold of you and breathe life into you. A supernaturally transformed person knows they are loved, and that is the very thing that turns them into people who love. That is the work that we need God to come and do. So as we get started today, I'd like you, knowing that we're thinking about pride and humility and what that looks like in the life of a Christian, Think about some people in your life that you're struggling to love. Um, you, you may have division in your marriage right now, as, as hard as that might be. Uh, you may be struggling to be patient with your kids. Kids, you may be having trouble honoring your parents. What about work and school? Uh, it's summertime, but as, as those friend and co-worker relationships 
work out. They often have a lot of strife. And who is that person in your life that's impossible to love? We, we all have that person, that person that just doesn't quite seem to get it almost from our perspective. That, that person that just no matter what you do, no matter how you try to love them, it just seems like you're always met with a cold front or a rebuke or harsh words. So believers today, search your hearts for those areas that still long to prove yourself good and worthy. Search your hearts for the places where you stand and try to justify yourself in front of your Father. And for those of you that don't consider yourselves to be Christians today, listen and hear how God can free you from the burden of strife and division in your life. Uh, We're going to deal with that in three main sections. The first, we're going to look at the problem of pride, try and understand exactly what what we mean when we talk about that. Uh, The second is the solution to pride. If If we determine after the first point that pride is a problem, what do you do with it? And third, the power over pride that we have. Um, So first, let's look at the problem. Now, the background of this passage, we've spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians. I'm sure we're all fairly familiar with it. But you must know that the church at Corinth was a very difficult place. It was a very interesting place. There, There were a lot of divisions. There was a lot of strife in between different groups, different sects among the body. There were followers of different preachers and leaders that had made their way through the church in the past. Uh, They had different stances on spiritual issues like marriage and pagan worship and how that affected the life of a believer. Uh, There were haves and have-nots. There were issues with people that were hungry not eating. There were people, there were issues with people that had plenty, um, serving themselves first when there were those going in want. So it was a difficult situation. It was a a church that initially sounds hard to identify with. It's it's a long time ago. It's it's lots of years ago. It's a different culture. It's a different even country, empire, makeup of how things happened in life. But something that you need to see, something that comes out very clearly in the passage leading up to our scripture passage passage today, is that they are elevating one man over another, one belief over another, or one class of people over another. And everyone is really advocating for his or her own self or their own group. Everybody has this idea that they are at the forefront, they are in the right, and they deserve to have a hearing and to kind of direct the way things go. It's, it's kind of a rat race. Now that, put in that context, almost can start to be identifiable here in America. Uh, in a culture where it's, it's get your own. If, if you're going to have something, you've got to go and take it. We, we've grown up in a country, we've grown up in a society, we've grown up in, in a culture here in the South that says hard work is rewarded. So go and get yours and you'll be taken care of. Now, there's one other thing that's important to understand in the the background of the context of this passage, that unlike other places in the Bible, when Paul is talking about pride, he's using a very specific word that's unique to 1 Corinthians and then one other place in the Bible in the book of Colossians. This, This word pride here specifically paints a picture in the original language of being puffed up or being elevated over. It's... It's an idea that that you've become greater or more superior. So Paul has established and is presenting to these Corinthians this problem that pride and boasting have caused these hierarchies in the church. Now, where is this happening in the world today? It it feels kind of like our culture. I think, if you'll allow me to, you could also make some comparisons between this context and the George Zimmerman trial we're currently going through. Now, I, I don't want to solve the case. I don't have any bearing to, to offer on whether I think he's guilty or innocent. But it's very interesting because with this trial, lots of people have strong opinions about what actually happened. They're verbally aggressive and they've developed factions. There are many people that are belittling the opposing view with accusations of things like racism. Because both sides feel like they have the moral high ground. That their side is the right place to be 
And they have created a spot from which they can look down on the opposite view. So that they can look at the other side and say, look, maybe... I don't know if I can see where you're coming from, but, but you need to see where I'm coming from because I've got it right. I can tell you what's going on. I can tell you how to solve the problem. And I can tell you that you're probably racist because of the way you're dealing with that issue. Now, our situation, in light of that context, we'll, we'll separate ourselves from the Zimmerman trial just a little bit. But, but understanding that perspective, that, that very negative, that very biting, that very harsh and divisive attitude... What does that look like in our lives? If, if Paul says pride is an issue, if Paul says elevating yourself creates divisions in the church, are there places in our lives where we've created division? Are there places in our lives where we're victims of division? Are we puffed up? Where are we elevating ourselves over those in our lives? Where are we divided here in our church, here at Redeemer? What about our marriages? our families, our workplaces, our schools. It's very easy in whatever context you find yourself in today to have a strong opinion about a situation and to feel convinced that you have the right answer, that you know what's happening, that you know the full context, that you've got all the facts in front of you and you can pass judgment on what's happening. Where in your life is self-seeking become your goal? Where in these situations in your life are you, on the surface maybe, appearing as if you are out for the good of everyone, but in your heart you know, this is going to work out best for me in the end. Where do you clearly have the right answer? Or as we've talked about it so much around here, where are you so concerned about what you see to be the truth? that you have no compassion. I know for my life, it's easy to point out right now, I think it was easy to walk into this building this morning sure that I knew what I needed to say. It was was really... It's there in front of me in the Bible. There's this problem, there's this pride, and we've got to get it out of people. So we've got to stand up, and we've got to present the issue... And then we've got to go after it. And we've got to beat it into people that pride is bad. And you were wrong. And you need to, to repent of that and turn from that. And very quickly it becomes evident that life isn't that simple. Life isn't that straightforward. It's difficult to sit down and list, alright, these, the, these are the relational struggles I'm having in my life right now, my... My marriage isn't really great. Uh, my kids are doing okay. That's fine. But, but I'm not doing so hot at work. And now I'm going to say that, that that's pride in my life. And that's where I need to identify it. That's my, my struggle with my coworker that sits next to me that always tries to take credit for my ideas. That, that's pride in my life. We, we don't operate like that. Because our tendency as humans, our, our tendency with our, our broken, fallen nature is to blame shift. Is to find excuses, is to accuse. And the Corinthians found themselves in a very similar situation. So the question is, how is all that working? In your life, in your your difficulties, wherever they may be, in your struggles relationally at home, at work, with your friends and family. How's it working? In these places where you're sure you have the truth and you know they just need to hear it from you. If you can just say it a different way next time or if you can just talk a little louder next time or if you can just come with a little more evidence or a few more facts to back up what you want to say or... Or that audio recording where you caught them saying exactly what they shouldn't have said. Where's that bitterness building inside of you today? I I said it before, but we assume we have the sufficient facts and sound judgments about life and the world around us. We think we know. But what does this say about our view of ourselves? That we are generally confident in our abilities and our assessments of situations. 
We don't need anyone else to make good decisions because we've got it on our own. And if we don't fix it, oftentimes, nobody else will. We see a problem and and we take it on for ourselves. But is that true? Looking back over your life, have you proven to be trustworthy in all those situations? Have you ever been wrong? What guarantees that you are right in a particular situation? Looking back, are, are you able to see the last time I was in a fight and I handled it with confrontation and aggression? Do you see that that, that worked well for you? Or do you see that that worked poorly? Do you see that, that often your assessments... As confident as you are in your own mind when you're playing out that argument ahead of time, or as, as certain as you are when you're, you're gathering all these evidence because you know you're going to get them, when you turn around and, and come to that person, how often are you confronted with facts that you didn't take into account? And then what do you do with those facts? Because you're so sure, and you know, and you know, and you know, so, so now you've got to keep pressing. Now you've got to be confident, you've got to be certain, you've got to keep pushing because you knew before you came you were right and you must still be right. I know in my life, um, my family's in the back today. Uh, they, they could tell you all about that for me. I, I was, am, and, and will still be tomorrow often overconfident in my abilities because I think I understand the world and how it works. And I think I've seen it all and I think I, have, I know every contingency or every every possible way, or every, every reason someone might do something, and I can play it out ahead of time, and I can know that I can, I can put myself on the high ground, and I can look down and say, I see that situation. I see all the details, and I can fix it. What we believe, what we start with at the beginning, uh, our call to worship, it, it's a sobering reminder that, that we don't. No, everything. It is for me. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one still stuck there. I don't know. But, but we serve a God who is big. We serve a God who knows all. And as, as we will see and as we are hopefully softened by, we serve a God who in spite of all that, in spite of knowing all the facts, showed love, showed compassion, showed grace. So as, as imperfect as my nervous presentation of this, this issue of pride has been, uh, I hope for you it's easy to sit and look and say, this really is a big problem in my life. I can, I can name at least one or two places that I know, that I thought I knew that I had the right answer. And maybe I still think I know that I have the right answer. So if it's a problem... If, if we have been humbled by confidence in the past, how do we deal with it? What's the answer? What's this overinflated view of self that Paul talks about and that, that he's chastising the Corinthians for? What's the right response? There are at least two, and I want to look at the wrong one first. The wrong one, our postmodern culture tells us, is to believe in yourself and not to be too hard on yourself. Don't worry about it. Everybody gets things wrong. It's okay. You can forgive yourself. Don't be so hard. Don't be so harsh. It's not really that big of a deal because what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me and we'll just all mind our own business and move on. Uh, maybe you see a thief or a cheater or an adulterer and think that their problem it's just that they must feel bad about themselves. All they need is to feel better about themselves. So the answer is simply to provide them that feeling. This is an underinflated view of this person's self and an underinflated view of yourself. The answer, yeah, the answer here is, is said to be don't pass any moral judgments but just affirm them because they've had a hard life. Maybe they're in prison. Maybe their dad left them and and they're having a troubled childhood. If they're really struggling through some hard things, just give them space. Just just love them. 
and they'll turn out all right. And as we've talked about so often before, love is a part of the answer, but love in itself is insufficient because love not coupled with truth is not real love. Compassion isolated by itself is not loving someone because there is no correction. If you find yourself in one of those situations, how is that working for you? Is the situation changing just by standing back and and hoping things get better? Is the division in that relationship lessening? Is true love really present? We assume we have sufficient facts and sound judgments again about life in the world around us. We've decided this time that the right answer we also can wrap our minds around is just to stay away. We know. We've got it. We, we can see their problem. They don't need to hear any truth. They don't need to be confronted. They don't need to be lovingly drawn close to. They just need their space. So what does this say about our view of ourselves? That we are generally confident in our abilities and assessments again that we don't need anyone else to make good decisions. I'm going to rewind that for a second. If you put the page behind, you only have one in front of you. But if you put it beside, you have two in front of you. And then eventually you may start reading like you're reading Chinese. You might start going from right to left and bottom to top. That's never happened to me before. Don't judge me. You've never been in this situation. I don't even know how to move forward here. This problem, as let's take one more stab at it. The answer here is said to be, don't pass any moral judgments, but affirm those who've had hard lives. But isn't this just the opposite of the previous problem, and thus a problem in itself? Now you have all compassion and no truth. Now you have no, no standard to determine right and wrong. This is less like the George Zimmerman trial, and more like maybe our political affiliations today. We are quick to give truth to those who have differing views from us. But how critical of we are we of our own positions? The problem is always with the other guy. The answer lies wholly outside of my party's control. The issue's over there. So don't look at me. We may mess up, but cut us some slack because there's the real problem. And then there's no need to be involved. There's no reason to put truth into that situation because you've left your enemy isolated and floundering. Now, this situation, what it may look like for us, is a little more difficult for me to wrap my head around because I'm very much the first. I, I am very good at giving you truth and no love. But these people, these people, that, even that is judgmental and condescending. Isn't it easy to fall into that trap? A person who struggles with this view, this underinflated view of their self. If this is you today, where in your life do you think that the solution to the problem will come on its own? Where are you sitting there in your seat today and saying, that problem with my family, that problem at work, I don't need to be involved. I have nothing to bring to the table. I'll love them, and I'll be nice to them, but I don't have anything to offer, or I don't know how to help, or I shouldn't help, or I don't want to help. Now, this is more subtle, but where has the overinflated attitude led you to a faulty view of, your per- of a person's self? Where do you clearly not have the right answer, so you don't feel obligated to help? Or as we've talked about it so much around here, where are you so concerned about showing compassion that you have no confidence in God's truth. So then as we looked at before, and I tried to look at with this side of the view too, let's, let's ask, 
why do we devalue ourselves when we're making decisions? Why do we assume that we have no sufficient facts or sound judgments about life and the world around us? What does that say about our view of ourselves? Before we had an issue, our view of ourself was that we were morally superior, that we were able to look down and make the assessments that were necessary to judge the problem, to fix the problem, and to move on with the, the inner confidence that we were right. In this situation, you have exactly the opposite. You, f- you may find yourself feeling, feeling like you have the low ground, unable to really see what's actually happening, unable to pass any judgment, unable to offer any help, completely separated from a situation and helpless to involve yourself. And you think that's all you have to offer. But is that true? Is there any resource that could provide you with insights into problems? Have you ever had an insight? What guarantees that you were wrong in this particular situation? I I think the the postmodern answer proves insufficient because it denies that there is intrinsic value and universal truth that God is creator and that God has created in each of us or, or created each of us in his image. So to get the real answer to the problem, we first have to understand ourselves. I, I gave a, a preview to it there. Paul's view of the self has two truths and then two conclusions that we'll look at. And then hopefully this will start to make more sense. The Christian view of self is that we are all sinful. That's truth number one. Tim Keller, in uh, his sermon, Blessed Self-Forgetfulness, where I am uh, sourcing a lot of the information I've come up with, if, if any of this doesn't make sense, or once all of this doesn't make sense, if you just go and listen to his sermon... He'll clear it all up, and you can just move on, and we won't talk about it anymore. Because you'll all be good after you hear that. But, but he says our egos are empty, painful, busy, and fragile. Our Christian view, the correct Christian view of ourselves is that we are all sinful. We need to be filled. We need to be comforted. We need to be assured of our value. And we need to be protected from the ups and downs of the judgment of ourselves and others. But the second piece that I alluded to earlier, we're also all created in the image of God. Our sinfulness has not left us hopeless because we have intrinsic value. So then the two conclusions. The first is this. So we can't can't trust our desires apart from the truth of the Bible or the work of the Holy Spirit. But neither can we deny, truth number two, that God loves us and desires to work through us whom he has redeemed and given his Holy Spirit and his inspired book of truth. So the right answer in light of those facts or the the truth that Paul offers us is a third option. No longer do we need to be morally superior to judge a situation. No longer do we have to feel morally inferior because we are simultaneously sinful and broken, but valued and eternally treasured. If it's not an inflated view, and if it's not a deflated view, it can subvert this dichotomy that we've explored. It's what Tim Keller calls self-forgetfulness or humility. Now, often we have a view of humility. Everybody has this idea that a humble person is a person that, that always actively pushes away the limelight. That every time you you attempt to to compliment a humble person, a humble person is supposed to say, oh, no, 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 I I didn't do anything good. There was nothing of me in that. That's wholly outside myself, you know. Leave me alone. I'm, I'm not worth anything. I'm not worth dealing with. But as Keller will show us, as, as Keller has shown me, and hopefully I will show us, That's not true humility. That's not faithful to what Scripture says about who we are. In in chapter 3 that we read a lot of minutes ago, Paul tells us that we are equal in God's eyes, that no one should be puffed up or feel inferior in relation to others. That's verses 21 through 23. 
And then in chapter 4, verse 3, he explained that he's not overly affected by others' opinions or his own view of himself. So the answer for him isn't high or low self-esteem. That the, then the answer is focusing on someone outside yourself. C.S. Lewis, Lewis describes it this way. You won't ever know it if you meet a truly humble person. He won't spend his time telling you that he's a nobody. Rather, he'll spend his time totally interested in you. This is because humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In Lewis's view, we need to get away from this idea that humility is directly connected with how we assess ourselves. Lewis is saying humility is active. Humility gives up looking inward. Humility doesn't feel the need to be morally superior. Humility is free from feeling helpless and morally inferior. So if the problem of pride rises from a mistaken view of self, and if the solution is a correct view of self that leads to self-forgetfulness, as C.S. Lewis tells us, how do we get there? In the, in the midst of, of what we've talked about today, the, the third point, now that maybe we understand the problem and we have some idea of what, what the, the solution is, that, that we're not seeking to be self-effacing but self-forgetful, how do we have the power to do that? Because that's not easy. That's not natural. That's not the bent of our hearts. If self-forgetfulness is the answer then what we need is to be rescued from ourselves because we're selfish people. Does that ring true in your heart today? Think about your enjoyment of comeback stories. We all love the story of the down and out who makes a return to glory. We see it in books and movies. uh, Les Mis, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. uh, For some of you who may not be as culturally up and with it, Shawshank Redemption. TBS has pretty much showed that to everybody, I think, by now. Why are these stories so powerful? Why do we gravitate towards them? What what is it about that story that rings true in your heart? Maybe it's because we understand that they represent a greater reality. We see our problems and long for a rescue. But who has the power to overcome all of the bad that we've done? Because we live in that on a daily basis even as the morally superior person, we just often tuck it deep inside. It's, it's easy for the morally inferior person to, to identify with that, that feeling of insufficiency, inadequacy, brokenness, sinfulness, inability. But can that hurt that we feel and the hurt that we've caused just go away? Don't we know that every crime deserves a punishment? Every wrong deserves to be made right? Our only hope is to have a rescuer. But in Jesus, we have that. Here's the good part. Here's the part that I think we can get right and we can all be on the same page with. The Bible tells us that in the midst of our sin, we deserve death. But Jesus came. He came and lived a perfect life. He pointed us to his Father with words and then with his actions. He showed the ultimate self-forgetfulness when he died on the cross. You see, if we have created a debt that has to be... You see, we have created a debt that has to be paid. And Jesus paid it in the only way possible. The only power over that sin in our lives is his death. Tim Keller says it beautifully again in his book, King's Cross. The gospel is the ultimate story that shows victory coming out of defeat, strength coming out of weakness, life coming out of death, and rescue from abandonment. And because it's a true story, it gives us hope because we know that life is really like that. This is what Paul's talking about in chapter 4, verse 7. When he says that everything that you have have received is not of yourself. In verse 7 he says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
Simply put, Jesus provided for you in the most ultimate way. And if God has provided for you in the most ultimate need, why would you not be able to trust him for the rest of your daily needs? So in Jesus, we can overcome ourselves by having faith in his example and trusting in his provision. If we trust that his death is sufficient for us, then we can rest. At that point, there's no need to pass judgment on someone else, to stand morally superior, to puff yourself up, to, to satisfy that longing in your soul that says, I, I've got I've to find a way to get rid of this feeling. I've got to elevate myself above it because I'm stuck and I'm broken. And the only answer I see is, is to make the people around me feel less. Because if I'm greater than them, then, then maybe God will smile on me. Then maybe God will allow me into heaven then maybe I have an eternal hope. Conversely, the frustration, the struggle of the morally inferior, of the the self-effacing person, is that there's no rest because there's that constant heaviness in your heart, brokenness in your life that you can't escape, that you can't fix on your own, that you try and try and, and, and you've tried to fix it and you can't. So now you just step away and say, maybe if I don't judge him, he won't judge me, and then there won't be any condemnation for me either. Then I'm safe. Then God will smile at me. Then, then there's no condemnation in my life. There's, there's no eternal frown from heaven. Only in Jesus has that been met. Only in Jesus can that that brokenness be defeated. If we trust that his death is sufficient for us, we can rest. Real rest from the constant struggle with ourselves. No more fighting to build ourselves up in the eyes of others. No need to justify or defend. Simply faith that Jesus sees value in us. And that's all that matters. Because this value is the reason that all of your needs will be met. So once you place your faith in that death... And as you begin to rest in that, as the only work that needs to be done to overcome the brokenness in your life, then you can become a self-forgetful person. You won't need to fight when you're wrong. You won't need to defend your reputation. You will simply be able to trust that Jesus' record of perfection now belongs to you. And there's no need to impose or to to conjure up that feeling of brokenness in someone else's life or to back off and, and not confront it. Because now there's an answer that's not on any one person that has been accomplished, been accomplished outside of everyone. Then you can truly love. Then and only then when that pride, that boasting can be separated from your life, when you can have freedom outside of it, can you begin to approach Jesus and you can begin to, to deal with the rest of your life. So how does this work itself out in our day-to-day lives? We all know that our needs don't disappear. Just because Jesus came doesn't mean that I don't have to eat. Doesn't mean that I have to brush my teeth. You still have to go to work. You still have to love your family. And all of this can be overwhelming. So how do I integrate this self-forgetful attitude into my life that feels so burdened by need? One of the most beautiful pictures I I know, one of the most powerful examples I've ever had in my life was the, the movie Les Mis. Um... I don't know if any of you went, understanding what you were going to get into. I, I kn- Emily's laughing. She went with me. I knew it was a musical. I, I guess, don't laugh at me. It was Broadway, right? Okay, there we go. You can, you can all stand high and judge me now. Um, I asked her ahead of time, you know, like 75% music? If, if a quarter of the movie is talking, I think I can make it through. I think I counted, and there were less than five words spoken without song. It was like a a two-and-a-half-hour movie. I think there were only three or four songs. I think they were all about 45-minute songs. I'm not bitter. So many of you see so much beauty in it, and I'm thankful. It has been so powerful in so many lives. But there's one scene that even got me. In the first quarter of the movie... The main character, Jean Valjean, um, is, is on a quest to redeem himself. He's on a quest to, to make right what has been wrong in his past. And 
there's a big ship in the beginning and he's being punished for something. I'm sure if you read the book, was there a book? Anyways, the point is he's got some debt to work off and, and he's got to get somewhere and he's got, you all know the story better than I do. He's got somebody chasing him that wants to impose justice on his life because the cop knows he's wrong. The cop knows he's bad and he's got from, from a morally superior high ground, he's got to make Jean Valjean feel this. He's got to lessen him so that he can be elevated, so that he can be okay. But what happens on his, early on his trek, Jean Valjean goes and stays at the house of a Catholic bishop. I believe it's a bishop. In the middle of the night, after the bishop has taken this homeless man in, this vagrant who's traveling to a, a distant land, he's fed him and given him a place to sleep. They all go to bed and, and Jean Valjean decides... You know, I, I can take advantage of this situation. I can make this work for me. I, I know how I can set my life right. I'm going to take a little bit of his silver, and I'm going to sneak out really quiet, and nobody's ever going to be the wiser. I'll be gone before anybody notices. What he didn't foresee was that as, as this criminal, as this vagrant, it looked a little suspicious walking around with lots of dollars and silvers in your hand, so the cops find him and bring him back and say, Bishop, we got him. You haven't asked us to, but we brought him to you because he took all this from you and we want to make it right. And in a moment when the bishop had every right to say, no, I want my stuff back. I want to impose justice on your life. I want to teach you a lesson. Because I'm right and you're wrong. The bishop refused. The bishop responded and said, he forgot some of the rest of the silver. Thanks for bringing him back. Now he can have the rest of what he didn't take and he can be on his way. That's hard love. That's love that I am powerless to live out outside of the love of Christ for me on the cross. But there's hope. But God made provision. And in that provision, we are now free to be wronged, to be taken advantage of, to not need the morally superior high ground because we have peace and rest in Christ. So here's my closing plea. If you haven't experienced this paradigm shift in your life, first go and listen to Keller explain it better. And then second, beg God for it in prayer. Because there is no hope outside of it. The Bible tells us that he is faithful to, to forgive those that repent of their pride and their sin. But if you have experienced this paradigm shift in your life, what you need to help you is community. Even inside of Christ, this is tough. Even inside of Christ, there's, there's a death that must be died daily just as Jesus died on the cross. You need other like-minded people to come alongside you. So find these people. One of the great opportunities you have here at Redeemer, on days like today, after service, when you can go and sit down in a community group and enjoy a meal together and talk about life together, and listen to podcasts together. You can cover your blind spots. Where previously you were unable to identify that's an area of pride in my life. Or that's an area of self-loathing self in my life. People outside that can look on your life and lovingly tell you, hey, we want to help. We want to get you through this. And people that want the same love and help in return. Thanks for bearing with me today. I feel like there should be some apology now. Maybe we'll just pray. God our Lord... And God, our Father, in our adequacy, both 
in our inadequacy, both felt and unfelt, you are faithful. You show grace and mercy when we fall short. You forgive when we seek to exact revenge. You love when we would hate. God, you've humbled us. With the picture of your son on the cross, you have shown us that there is no place for exacting revenge. There is no place for moral superiority. There's no place for pride in our hearts and our lives. Because when we were right in the most ultimate thing, you pursued us. You came after us. You showed us true love. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for second chances. God, send us out from this place today humbled not by ideas or words, but humbled by your love, by your action, by your initiating love. Help that to change the way we we look at our wives and our children and our co-workers Help it to change the way we look at our parents and our friends. Take the harshness from our hearts and our lives. We beg. Take the insecurities away and give us Jesus. Oh God, give us Jesus. You can have everything else if we, if we can just have your son because we see his great love. Amen. Well, in light of the good news that we have heard in Christ, let's stand together. Let's sing these songs. Of- thanks, Brian. Uh, thanks, Blake. Uh, Tell these guys thank you uh, as you see them as you're leaving. I know it would be an encouragement to them. Uh, The power for what Blake was calling us to, uh, knowing the death of Christ for you enables you to go and die for others and drains your heart of all pride and makes yourself forgetful. This benediction is the promise, the reminder, it's kind of the stamp on this entire service as you go. Uh, Go with him. Go resting in his promise to equip you to do that work. So receive it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.